You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Saad Malik, who is running Flask in Production to help power a free service that analyzes your cover letters. Saad, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your site? Sure. So uh, by profession, I am a, a data scientist. I do a lot of work in uh, automation of data pipelines. I previously worked for a bank and now I do mostly freelance work. So um, I got the idea of Cover Tuner when I was going through a phase where I was applying to a lot of jobs. What usually happens is when you when it comes to writing a resume, it's fairly simple in terms of the template. Uh, it's fairly simple in terms of you know writing bullet points. Uh, you you want to have your address there. You want to have links to your uh, GitHub, for example. All of that is pretty clear. When it comes to cover letters, things can get a bit more vague. So I took a lot of the advice that I was getting from people in terms of how to write a cover letter, and I wanted to translate that into something that you can uh, compute. And that's really where the idea of uh, covertuner.com arose. Interesting. So how does this work? Do people just upload a cover letter and then they get data back from your site? Yeah. So um, to give you a bit of an introduction as to how it works, um, all you have to do as a user is go onto the website and put your cover letter in and submit it. And instantly you get sort of interesting numbers as to... Um, a few of the, the as to a few of the characteristics of your cover letter. So, for example, if you're using a lot of first singulars in your cover letter, uh, first singulars are your I's, me's, my's, myself. It'll tell you how many of those exist there, and um, we also give recommendations on like you shouldn't have more than eight um, percent of your words be first singulars. Right, so that's something that we would tell you. We also tell you what the target words are of your cover letter. So the way we do that is that we take all the words in your cover letter, we get rid of the stop words. These are your ands, ors, and stuff like that. Uh, once we get rid of that, we get a list of target words, and then we find the words based on the highest frequency. So we also deliver you that. So insights like this that can help you really tune your cover letter and make sure you're targeting it correctly and you're not making it too wordy and stuff like that. So prior to when we hopped on this call, I did go to your site and I noticed that it's a free service. So that means people can sign up. They don't have to put in any credit card details to get this information, right? Correct. So when I first made this tool, I made it for myself. Um, I used to put my cover letters through it and it used to just give me a text output as to uh, you know how many words are in my cover letter, how many meaningful words are there, and so forth. I decided to make a web app out of it. So uh, I don't really see a reason to charge users for it or require any sort of personal information for the use of the tool. It's a completely free tool that anyone can use as many times as they want. Very cool. So then are you the only developer on this project? Oh, yeah, it's only me. And actually, that thing... Uh, guided a lot of the decisions I made from a technical point of view um, in terms of which frameworks to use, which languages to use, and all of that. Right. And I guess that's a good segue into, so what motivated you to use Flask and Python? Yeah. So when it comes to the languages that I'm skilled at, Python is probably at the very top. 
the way python is written is the same way that i think so whenever i can do something with python i usually go for that um when it comes to flask i asked myself a few questions uh, when i was uh, starting off those questions were firstly how many people do i think are going to be working on this with me and since it was only me i'm skilled at flask i have some experience with django but i'm much better at flask than i am with django so obviously that's one thing i didn't really need a um, sort of admin panel that comes with django um, and at the same time um, i figured that using flask i can have a mvp ready much quicker as compared to if i use django so that's basically how i decided to go with flask and python right so how did you end up starting off this project with flask was it basically just hacking around on one file and then you kind of grew it out as you needed to yeah so like i said before the python scripts that do the actual comp- uh, computation using uh, the nlp library nltk were already were already made um i had to set up the flask side and link the sort of computational engine of the app with flask okay yeah that seems like a pretty cool way to go about it right it's like you wrote this a python script independent of a site completely and then it's like you just layered the web component on afterwards using that existing code you already had yeah i cleaned it up quite a bit cuz uh, again that was a very messy script but essentially it's the same thing uh so that made the entire process a lot easier because all flask now has to do is uh, import um functions from that script and just run them and then give the output there so it's a it's a very clean code base yeah So you mentioned NLP. Do you want to just give maybe a TLDR and what that is? Yeah, so NLP just stands for natural language processing. Um there are a few libraries that you can use with Python when it comes to an uh, NLP. Uh those are NLTK and Spacy. And all they basically do is that they take text and they can do various uh, kinds of computation on it. So in the case of CoverTuner, when we take an input we break it up into a array of words and then with that array we can do all sorts of computation so if you want for example just a um, word count we can just give you the size of that array and you'll have the word count if you want for example the amount of meaningful words within that array then we can compare it to an array which has stop words and we can use a second array to get rid of the stop words in the primary array and then you'll have only the meaningful words left uh, so using these uh, little uh, tools we can basically come up with really interesting and subtle insights on text interesting so what would make an nlp library different than using something like uh, a full text search on some database like even postgres or elasticsearch or something like that yeah so um uh i'll give you one scenario where um i think uh, the differences will be clear so when you do what's called word vectorization which is break the word up the library itself will assign can assign if you wanted to a label to each word so i mentioned first singulars before once you do the vectorization you can tell nltk to pick out the words that are first singular and put them maybe in a separate array So a lot of that built-in functionality exists in these NLP libraries that uh you can use and it makes working with text uh a lot easier. 
Cool. So these libraries then, they're very popular open source projects, been around the block for a while? Oh yeah, so NLDK has been around for many, many years. Uh, Spacey is, which I don't use, but Spacey is a lot newer. It's actually a bit faster as well for a few tasks, um, and it does some really advanced NLP things as well. Uh, I don't use it here in this project, but uh, yeah, both of these are uh, available for anyone to use and have been around for a long time. Okay, so speaking about speed maybe a little bit, uh, do you want to get into maybe like how many cover letters you've analyzed? Like what does your traffic look like? Sure. So the traffic is highly variable based on the day of the week. So um, you get spikes in traffic on starting on Tuesday till uh, I'd say about um, Thursday. And then it starts slowing down. And uh, the weekend is usually uh, the slowest uh, time in terms of traffic. I'm getting around 1,000 users a month. And... Um, you know that that's that's reasonable, but I think a better metric here is that of the users that come to the site, about half of them submit a cover letter. So, th so I think that's a pretty uh, useful metric. And in terms of cover letters that I've analyzed up till now, it's around uh, 400 uh, to this point. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's a really good uh, outcome there. What is that like a 50% conversion rate? Yeah, almost 50%. Yeah. And another interesting metric is um, the site duration is pretty high so we're looking at three minutes uh, on google analytics and that's on a basically a one-page static website okay so after they upload their cover letter you do some processing and then they look at that static page until they're happy with or whatever they read yeah so what usually happens is that you send in one cover letter you get the analysis for it and it takes some time to go through the analysis most people uh, and we track this as well on our end they make a few edits and they send it again, or and they would make a few more and then do it again. So it's usually two or three uses of the tool in sort of one go. Ah, oh, that's pretty cool. So yeah, it's almost like like a live feedback program, right? It's like they submit it, you process it, they see it, and they're like, ah, I'll change that and then resubmit it until they're happy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So going back to this app, then how is the UI and backend set up? Is it server render templates with Jinja or do you have like an API backend with uh, some JavaScript front end? It's entirely um, uh, server side templates. I use Jinja and I've used a bit of jQuery here and there for stuff like event handling. But again, uh, based on the requirements of the web app, it didn't really make sense to go with a the API backend here. Right. So when it comes to rendering that page that uh, they see after submitting it, that's just all fully rendered server-side after you do all the processing. Yeah, yeah. It's all done server-side, uh, and that's the fastest way to do it. A big issue for, for me here was making sure that the response you get is as quickly as possible. Um, and so doing it server-side was a lot more faster for me. Right. So do you do that processing in uh, a background task, like using Celery or something else, or do you just have the user wait until it's finished? So the, so that's the thing, right? I made it so that you can get a response in less than five seconds. So you just click submit. The page is going to essentially refresh and um, you're going to see um, the variables the variables populated with insights. Okay, so those those uh, variables, they get populated with like an Ajax call, like once once it's fully done? Yeah, once, it, once it's a submission, they get populated with an Ajax call and you can see that through uh, Ginger. Okay. So when it comes to the Flask app itself, uh, which web server did you decide to use? GUnicorn, Uwisgi, something else? Yeah, GUnicorn. Uh, I went for that. That was, again, the quickest way to do it with the Google App Engine. And uh, it works really well. 
Okay, so Google App Engine, you you have everything hosted on GCP. Uh, so yeah, so let me get into that a bit. So I had to decide whether I wanted to use Google App Engine or Google Compute Engine. Um, the difference here is that with App Engine, everything is most of the stuff is managed by Google. So the load balancing, uh, deployment of clusters, that's all done by Google. Um, you do pay a premium for it, but it makes your time to deployment a lot quicker. Um, so I decided to go with that as opposed to going with the compute engine and setting everything up myself. Right. Okay. So you're not dealing with individual servers. You're basically using all their managed uh, services. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now with um, the flexible environment on Google app, uh, on Google app engine, you can have, uh, you know, you can modify your runtime using Docker and all of that. But as of right now, I'm not doing that, but that is a capability that is there. Okay, so for someone who may have never used Google App Engine before, do you want to maybe go over like your thought process? Like, what made you choose that over Heroku or over another managed service? Like, what won you over to use that one? Yeah, so the thing about the Google Cloud Platform is that um, it has some really interesting features when it comes to data science. Uh, it has they have their own. Uh, natural language API as well. Um, and even though I'm not using those services right now, there is the potential that I can use them. So the reason I went with Google Cloud was because I wanted to be within that whole ecosystem where doing work would be a lot easier. So if I'm using a Google App Engine and I want to link it up with the natural language API that Google has, it would be a much easier process than going with uh, Heroku, for example. Right. But when it goes to deploying your application, is it as simple as just like pushing code somewhere and then it's basically done or is there more to it? Yeah, so I have Google's SDK and I use the G Cloud uh, command line tool for it. So you basically, uh, yeah, you just have to uh, push your uh, application through that and it can deploy it in minutes. Uh, now, interestingly, if you use the standard App Engine environment, it can take seconds. But the flexible environment actually takes a bit longer. Okay. And yeah, we'll go into uh, that a little bit later. But for now, uh, when you mentioned using external services, that reminded me, uh, when it comes to your application, do you have this set up as like a monolithic app or do you have it broken up into some microservices? So the app that you see and users interact with, that's a monolithic app. However, on my end, I do have another app that processes the cover letters that are sent in. Um, now that runs locally. So, um, you know, but once a day or once every two days, I run that uh, on my own computer and uh, process a lot of the cover letters that users sent in. So if you want to look at both of these two apps together, then that would be sort of like a, you know, a microservices uh, architecture. Or if you want to just look at the uh, covertuner.com web app, then that's monolithic. Okay, so that one that you run locally every day or two, what information does that give you that's not included with what a user would see after submitting the cover letter? Yeah, so when it comes to actually running analytics on these cover letters, we have to go through a lot of validation steps. So for example, you know, you could go into the site and write, let's say, one sentence and send it in. It would be saved on uh, our database, but we can't use that uh, to do analytics because... Uh, that's not a proper cover letter. So I have these validation scripts that are running um, in the second app 
which, for example, would go in and there are a lot of if conditions there that would check if this is a legitimate cover letter. If this is a legitimate cover letter, then it's going to compare it with all other cover letters to see maybe the maybe the cover letter that you've submitted is a variation of one that you've submitted before. And then we're only going to keep one of those and not keep both of them. So the analytics that we're calculating about that cover letter um, uh, are don't get messed up. Ah, I see. Okay. So that tool that you use then, that is basically the single source of truth for training your NLP system, or is that how you would classify that? No. So I'm working on a sort of data analytics page for a cover tuner where you could see interesting um, stats on the cover letter submitted. So for example, think of a word cloud that's made of all the cover letters that are submitted, or think of a uh, graph which tracks the usage of keywords uh, and time. Uh, based on the cover letters that are submitted. So to make that side of the website, I have to get good data. And this second tool provides me with the ability to get, you know, good, accurate data from cover letters that are submitted. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes total sense. So we've been talking about data here for a little bit. Uh, do you want to maybe go into the rest of your tech stack, like what database you're using, etc.? Yeah, I'm using uh, MongoDB Atlas. Uh, I'm using their free tier, so you get 512 MB. Uh, you get one cluster, uh, which has a capacity of 512 MB. And it's also mostly fully managed. Um, I also use Google's um, cloud storage as well. Um, all the uh, data is initially stored in the cloud storage, and then it's uh, transferred over to uh, MongoDB. The reason for that was that I wasn't able to securely connect App Engine with MongoDB Atlas because that would have required um, reducing the um, uh, firewall on MongoDB side. App Engine doesn't give you a list of IP addresses that you can whitelist on MongoDB. So if you want to connect them directly, you'll have to accept connections from all IP addresses on MongoDB. I didn't want to do that. So I transfer the information first to Google's cloud storage, and then from there I transfer it to MongoDB. Okay, that makes sense. So was there something you thought about for choosing MongoDB over... Uh, like MySQL or Postgres instead? Yeah, so the first thing was that I didn't want to go with a, a fixed schema. Uh, it has to be schema-less because I don't know where this project's going to go in the future. I don't know what kinds of, maybe in the future I'll ask for email addresses in addition to cover letters, right? So I don't know what the data is going to go, look like going into the future. So it had to not have a fixed schema. Secondly, when it comes to data science, so it's beneficial to have data in JSON as uh, compared to you know CSV or something like that. Um, MongoDB met both of those requirements. And I also really like the uh, user interface that you get with uh, MongoDB Compass. It's, it's really useful if you wanna quickly go in and, and uh, query something very quickly and get some information. So that was basically what one of the few reasons I decided to go with uh, MongoDB. Okay, so I've actually never run MongoDB in a real production environment. What is Compass exactly? Uh, so Compass is just like a graphical user interface tool um, that you can use to explore uh, a collection. So you, uh, entries are stored as documents um, and documents can make up a collection. So you can go in and quickly go through the documents and make a simple queries um, and the data is visible you know, very easily and it's very quick. So it helps with uh, data analysis a lot. Right, so comparable to like PG admin with Postgres or PHP my admin, I guess, with MySQL, whatever you would use in, in those cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so going back to the rest of your tech stack, you mentioned that you're not using Docker. 
that means in development as well. Yeah. Was there something that just like turned you off from using Docker or was it just like too many new things to learn at once? No. So uh, Google itself is managing the uh, Docker file. Now it allows you to customize it if I want to, but there's no need to do that right now. Okay. So in development, then you have all of this set up just running directly on your box, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you have what your Unicorn server running locally. And then I guess, do you also have like a MongoDB server as well? No. So the MongoDB server is um, uh, hosted on uh, um, MongoDB cloud. Um, and that's connected to uh, my uh, Google cloud platform. So yeah, I don't run MongoDB locally at all. Okay. Yeah. So you just connect to like a special dev or a test database. Yeah, exactly. So do you run anything else, uh, any other services like Nginx or is that all sort of just handled by uh, Google App Engine? Yeah, that's, that's the benefit of using Google App Engine is that they're going to handle all of this. And um, sort of all you can focus on is actually, you know, developing the application, getting it uh, deployed in as short of a time as possible. Right. So they're dealing with things like, you know, I don't know if they're using Nginx, but an Nginx equivalent, they're dealing with uh, like a load balancer for SSL certificates. And yeah, they're doing all of that. Okay. And static files as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're dealing with that as well. Yeah. That's very cool when you don't have to worry about managing all of that stuff yourself. Yeah. But it does come at a price though, because um, Google App Engine is quite a bit more expensive than using Google Compute Engine, where you would have to uh, you know, manually configure uh, the VMs and everything. In fact, I did a few calculations. It's almost about 100% more expensive than using uh, a compute engine. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a big difference. Although I guess like, well, if it was like 10 bucks a month and now it's 20, that's not too bad. But if it was like 100 and now it's 200, that's going to get up there. Exactly. So with MongoDB, you can scale and it's pretty affordable. But scaling with Google App Engine can get really expensive really quickly. So I'm not sure if you're comfortable with this, but are you able to share, like, what does your monthly bill look like? Oh, right now it's like uh, $3 for um, App Engine. Oh, he bought this up as like, oh, this is going to be really expensive. And it's like, oh, three bucks. Nice. Yeah. But again, if you say that, okay, I'm going to receive a lot of traffic, let's say uh, three, four months from now, then you can make a very good argument that you should invest the time in setting up Compute Engine because over time you'll save um, quite a bit of money on that. Right. But how do you think that will scale? What did you say you're doing about 500 cover letters a month, give or take? Uh, yeah. If you had about 10 times that, would you say your costs would probably go up 10 times that or no? Um, it would probably be more than 10 times that. Um, that's because um, once people start using the platform excessively, um, it's going to require um, a lot more usage of some of the cloud functions that I have right now. Um, they might, uh, the way, let me give you an idea of how it works right now. So data comes in, goes into cloud storage. And from there, it is using a cloud function. It's transferred over to MongoDB. I would have to either do that more often, run those functions. If I'm dealing with a lot more uh, cover letters, or I'm going to start having to pay for a lot more capacity with the Google uh, cloud storage buckets. So right now everything's happening in one bucket. I might have to actually pay and get more buckets in the future if I get a lot of traffic. Okay. So just to maybe listeners out there who are not too familiar with Google's platform, even myself, like I'm going to take a guess at this. When you see those buckets, that's like the equivalent of like an S3 bucket, but on Google's platform, I, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, pretty accurate. Okay. And then the Google functions are kind of like lambdas, right? It's almost like a serverless environment where you just execute a function. Don't need to worry about computing at all other than the cost. Yeah. You have to set up a trigger 
for that function and then whatever is there is executed and yeah you don't have to worry about computing but there is a limit to how many functions you can set up in a given amount of time so like i said if i'm making those functions more frequent i'll probably have to pay more than i do right now okay so maybe this would be a good time just to maybe rewind a little bit and maybe go over some of or all of the google services that you're using to make this application work just so people can be like you know they can research this stuff on their own later yeah so the google services that i'm using uh, include google app engine the cloud scheduler uh, google cloud functions and uh, cloud storage buckets so i'm using all four of these together to get uh, various tasks done and compute and app engine itself basically also uses compute engine so even though i don't directly interact with compute engine uh, app engine is interacting with it okay so do do you maybe want to walk us through how all of those services kind of interact with each other like when this one calls this one then this other thing happens sure so um when a user goes into our app and submits a cover letter immediately it's stored in the cloud storage buckets um like i mentioned before it's probably not a good idea to set up a direct connection between app engine and mongodb and there are a few security uh, concerns that you would have with that so from cloud storage buckets i use a cloud function that is triggered by the cloud scheduler every uh, hour that uh, takes the new submissions that are in uh, the buckets and transfers it to mongodb um and i then then access i can then access mongodb and do you know all sorts of analysis that i want to do with the cover letters okay sounds pretty cool so going back maybe to mongodb a little bit you mentioned that you want to avoid using schemas because who knows you know maybe you'll add some more fields later on yeah and uh you know i'm not trying to like pick on you on this decision or whatever but like doesn't that mean you would technically need to kind of make your own schemas at the application level right it's like your jinja templates and your views would kind of need to know you know maybe this email address exists maybe it doesn't so so uh i think i'll say that with the mongodb we're not actually the user never queries mongodb for information mongodb is only receiving information so as long as um i know that uh, i know exactly the fields that i'm sending to mongodb that won't be an issue uh so that was my primary reason there's no um back and forth between mongodb and a user on our site right okay So also like I'm familiar with uh SQL Alchemy dealing with like Postgres but is there some type of ORM or what database library do you use to connect to MongoDB? Mongo no so I use PyMongo. Uh PyMongo sets up the connection between uh uh Python and uh, MongoDB. Yeah, I know technically it's not like an ORM because it's not a relational database but you know what I mean some type of library to connect. Yeah. So does that library handle uh things for you in a nice way like its API is is good to use? Oh yeah, it's it's very it's very simple and it's very intuitive and it's uh pretty similar to uh I wouldn't say very similar but it's somewhat similar to uh you know queuing in MySQL or something. Right. Except that you don't need to deal with database migrations which is actually a very big win. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, cuz when it comes to deploying with database migrations that's like one of the trickiest things to do. Yeah, yeah. Again, one of the real requirements for this was that I wanted to get to an MVP as quickly as I could. So a lot of the decisions I made going with MongoDB Atlas or Google App Engine were because of that reason. Right. Now speaking of MVPs, like how long did it actually take you to code this thing up before it was able to be released? So, um I haven't done a tremendous amount of work on the front-end side. I have created a lot of uh flask based apis in the past um so i spent 
quite a bit of time dealing with the front end side, especially with uh, uh, jQuery and so forth. Um, but I would say a total time would be around uh, four to five days for uh, to get this uh, up and running. Wow, that's amazing. Four or five days is, is very fast, like on any scale. Yeah, but I had the script ready for like a long time. So, uh, you know, I had the main engine of the app. I just had to connect it with Flask and uh, make the front end for it. Right, just the web layer. But that's still pretty cool in itself. It's like, you know, there's still a number of things you need to wire up, right? All the Flask views and like validations and authentication. Yeah, there's still some work to do. Correct. So, so there is another aspect of it that actually took uh, quite a bit of time, which was, so the website also has recommendations on the variables that it uh, calculates. So for example, if you're sending in a cover letter for a software development position, then you can find out what is the optimal proportion of meaningful words um, that your cover letter should have. And so that recommendation is based on a lot of web scraping that I did. I went on a lot of these websites, which um, uh, list sample cover letters. I ran those cover letters through the tool that I had and I created aggregates uh, for those insights. So it can give you a range as to the proportion of meaningful words that your le cover letter should contain. So that aspect took some more time as well. Right. But that's also something I guess you did later on after the MVP or is it just like at the same time? Uh, I would say at the same time. You know, I've worked on both of those together, but that took, I would say, two, three days to do. That's almost like half the time. Yeah, yeah. So do you know like off the top of your head some of the Python libraries that you're using to make up this Flask application that you really liked? Like which auth libraries do you use or anything that's, you know, sounds good in your head? Mostly I only use NLTK, but I am using NumPy here and there as well. Okay, so though for the Flask components of the app, there's not really too many libraries that you use? No, no, uh, there's not much. I do use, you know, uh, JSONify to make sure that... Um, the outputs that I'm, I get into MongoDB are in JSON format, but then that's all. So when it comes to the cover letters themselves, then, are you saying that uh, you don't even need to create a user account before you're able to submit one? Exactly. So I wanted to make sure that I don't collect any personal information. Um, I'm going to do a lot of analytics work with these cover letters, so it's best if I you know, don't have any access to personal information like your name, your email address, and so forth. So you can use this tool without creating an account, without doing anything. All you have to do is go to the site and paste your cover letter in. Very cool. So then I guess you also don't even need to deal with things like sending out emails, right? Correct. I do have one um, form service set up. I use Vufu. They have a free tier, which gives you a 500 submission capacity. And you can also you know, have a pretty customized form uh, on your site. Now I forgot to mention, but I do use WT forms with Flask. And even though I don't need to right now, I do think that going into the future, maybe if I want to create some extensive validation mechanisms there, WT forms would be pretty useful there. Right. So this would be before the user is able to submit the cover letter. It'll just make sure like the title is filled out or whatever it is. Yeah. 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 So that I'm using WT forms right now for that. And uh, WD form will probably scale well if I decide to ask for more information from the user, like maybe in the future if I want, uh, you know, an email or something like that. Yeah, no, it's a really good library. I use it all the time as well. So you mentioned using at least one external SaaS tool there to process those form submissions. Uh, do you use any other SaaS tools? Oh, yeah, I use uh, Google Analytics um, and I use Google Search Console. 
With Google Search Console, it's very interesting. When I first uh, launched the web app, the UI UX was completely completely different than what it is right now. And I ran a URL inspection on Search Console, and immediately it said that there's a problem with your site in terms of mobile compatibility. So I actually used that feedback to really revamp the site, and start, I started using uh, Flex containers and started using a bit more jQuery here and there to make the website a bit more mobile friendly um so that was pretty helpful and yeah i do use google analytics as well right yeah that uh web console is quite handy for figuring out all sorts of good stuff so you mentioned uh you know you sprinkled in flexbox and jquery are you using something like bootstrap or a different uh framework so i was thinking of using bootstrap but again one of the issues i had with bootstrap was that it was pretty heavy and if i did load bootstrap onto it it would um pretty must be overkill because it's a very static page with uh, you know not that much information in terms of the amount of uh, text that's visible and all of that so i didn't go with bootstrap um uh, i just used uh, jquery here and there and um, for css i used uh, the flex containers right and that's just native implementations in a browser not a specific library yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. And then for other things like SaaS tools, like, I don't know, error reporting and logging and metrics, is all that included with Google App Engine? Uh, so you, it's not included in the sense that it's preset. You have to set them up yourself. Um, and I did the same thing for uh, MongoDB Atlas as well. So, um, you know, I get notifications anytime that, uh, you know, there's excessive usage or if there's a new connection to the database, I can get a notification for that. Right, and if something like, you know, an error 500 happens with the Flask app, you'll get notified? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I think now would be a good time to swing back to your deployment process. Would you mind going over what it looks like to go from development to production step-by-step? Yeah, so with Google App Engine, it's pretty simple. Google has this really good SDK that comes with G Cloud CLI. Um, You basically just point to your project and you make a few selections on... um, the uh, CLI and now if you have a YAML file that's already been used before it's automatically going to detect it and upload that update as a new version so one really big advantage of that is that it stores the previous versions as well so if at deployment there's any issue with the app you can immediately direct traffic to the previous versions and you know troubleshoot whatever problem you might be facing um, in terms of the time to, of deployment, it takes a few minutes, like I mentioned before, with App Engine to get a uh, update up and running. Okay, and during those few minutes, though, the previous version is still up and running that users can use, right? Exactly. So uh, until uh, the current, the new one is uh, uploaded, all the traffic is directed to the previous one. Okay, so do you run any local tests before you deploy, or do you have like some CI server set up with Google App Engine? No, so I run tests myself. So every time I am about to make a update, um, uh, I have uh, separate templates that I run just for the testing. Okay. Um, so I do that pretty extensively, and then I go for the update. So for the testing, do you use PyTest or something else? Yeah, I use Flask's built-in Py the PyTest. Yeah, it's an awesome library. Yeah, exactly. It's very it's very uh, easy to use. So I've never deployed things with Google App Engine before. You mentioned that YAML file. Is that just something that sits in the root of your project that you need to kind of configure? Yeah, yes. The App Engine looks for the YAML file. Um, and the YAML file basically uh, is linked to your uh, project name. 
So um, if it, when, once it detects the YAML file, it's going to give you the option to confirm the project name. And then the YAML file will also have the version history um, of your app. Okay. So are there any other properties in there or is it just those two? Oh, you have to mention that you're using a G-Unicorn as well in the YAML file. Okay. So how about dealing with things like secret keys? Is there anything special you need to do with that? So uh, because I'm not using uh, any sort of uh, API for it, uh, I don't really have to worry about secret keys. Um, I did mention before that uh, linking MongoDB with Google App, uh, App Engine can lead you to have a sort of unsecure setup on your database site. My workaround for that was basically direct data to Google Cloud Storage first and then transfer it securely through to MongoDB. So I didn't have to worry about API keys at all. Ah, what about other maybe secrets like even, what is it, Flask underscore secret, the one where, you know, if you're dealing with sessions and things like that, you'd want to keep that private? Yeah, we, I don't have anything in cache or any sessions running. It's just like a very simple, you know, a word calculation process that takes place. So um, yeah, I didn't have to really deal with that. Luckily. Right. Although maybe technically, I guess when you submit one of those forms with WT forms, there is like a CSRF token that is signed by that key. Oh, yeah. I, I, I have not implemented that. Right. So that WT forms is something that it's on the horizon. It's not running live on the site right now. Yeah, I, I will use it in the future for validation. Right. Okay. So it sounds like Google App Engine has you covered. It covers a lot of ground for helping you get deployed. Does it also help you deal with things like disaster recovery? Like how do database backups work? So uh, um, with with MongoDB, it's actually pretty simple because they have a backup of your cluster um, that is very easily accessible in case of some kind of catastrophic failure. Um, with App Engine, you have to set it up. It's not there uh, by default. So you can set up disaster recovery mechanisms with Google App Engine. Nice. Now, I guess when users, when they upload that cover letter, are they actually uploading like a PDF or is it just plain text? Oh, it's plain text. Um, it has to be plain text if I need to make it simple for NLTK to process the text. Okay. I only asked that because on the topic of disaster recovery, I wasn't sure if there was like user-generated files that you need to back up as well. No. So those user-generated files, uh, the backup for that would be MongoDB. The only uh, input to MongoDB is coming from uh, Google Cloud Storage. It's not coming directly from uh, App Engine. And... Um, MongoDB, like I said, has pretty good uh, disaster recovery tools. Now, you mentioned you do have, you know, alerts if, if things go down and you get errors, but does Google App Engine also give you a way to configure, like, custom alerts? Like, if, you know, maybe the CPU goes above X percent, you get alerted, or is that really not something you even need to deal with? So I have those set up with um, MongoDB. Um, I have some of them set up in terms of the CPU usage that you mentioned. So yeah, I will get a notification if there's excessive CPU usage. Uh, there's also a quota system that you can set up where um, you can specify that, hey, I don't want to spend more than um, $50 a month, for example. So if it gets near that quota in terms of expenditure, you'll get notifications. Yeah, that's great to hear because I find those notifications to be you know, they're very proactive, right? It's like if you get that email saying like, hey, the server's about 80% for five minutes, it's like you can go and fix that problem before it actually takes your site down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it helps with the quotas as well. So you can use both. You can use the notifications for CPU usage. You can use the notifications for uh, expenditure in terms of cost. 
right? So given all of this, would you say if you were to rewrite everything and redeploy everything, you would use the same setup or different? Um, I think that's an interesting question. So with MongoDB, I would definitely go with that. I'm really happy with it. I think it scales really well. With Google App Engine, the cost is quite high once you start talking about a lot of scale. So if I'm developing something where I think in the future I'm going to have a lot of traffic, I would probably invest the time and uh, go with Google Compute Engine. Uh, it's going to take a bit more time in terms of setting everything up, but it's a lot more affordable uh, in the long run. Right. And in your case, I guess that just would have been too much of a time investment early on to get set up with? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And again, when I started making this um, app as a sort of side project, um, I did it because uh, you know, as you know, we're all under lockdown and uh, I didn't know how long we would be in lockdown for. So it could have been that I want this thing done in one week, you know, so I didn't, I, I just knew I had to get it done as soon as I could. Um, and that's why I selected App Engine. Right. And here we are on lockdown one month later and we're still on lockdown. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, if I had uh, put that time in and used Compute Engine, I might have saved a, a dollar. Yeah. Well, at this point, you probably could have recreated the whole entire app engine on your own. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app? So I would say that the lesson I learned here was being mindful of the SaaS tools at the start of the development process rather than thinking of them as an afterthought. Um, I'll give you an example here. So I was working with uh, Google Analytics to keep track of conversions. However, the way I'd set up the app was that the page in which the results would be visible had the same URL as the page in which the user would submit the cover letter. So for Google Analytics, it was very difficult to keep track of cover letter submissions because it would count a refresh on the home page as a conversion as well. So I had to make a few changes there to make sure that the site works correctly with uh, Google Analytics. And that was like, that took quite some time because I had to restructure a few things there. Yeah, that that's a really, really good one. And in fact, I can relate to that on a totally different tech thing, but it's the same exact lesson. It's like, you know, when it comes to setting up like billing in your application, if you don't do that early on and ignore it until the end, and when you get to the end, you might think like, oh, my checkout process is so good to go. And then it's like, oh crap, I forgot I need to implement like these 90 things that my payment provider wants. And before you know it, your whole checkout process needs to change like drastically. Yeah, exactly. You should be thinking of these things, you know, at the start of the development phase so you don't struggle later on. So now speaking of best tips and lessons learned, do you have any maybe like mistakes that you've made besides that that you've kind of fixed uh, before things went out? Yeah, I would say that and this um, links to the um, point about, um, you know, config thinking about SaaS tools early on is that if you start with a very organized project, it's a lot easier to get good work done later on. Um, and it's a lot easier to scale. Um, I went with an approach where it was all about, you know, getting the MVP, MVP ready. And um, I did suffer on the organization end to some extent, which meant that when I had to make major changes later on, they took a lot longer than they should. Yeah. Yeah, I'm guilty of doing that once in a while. It's always nice to get things up and running fast, but then it's like the next step is making it nice. And yeah, if you spend too long getting it up and fast without going to that second step, you end up with like a big jumbled mess of craziness. So when it comes to that, actually, do you use any tools to help you manage like the development of your project? No, so I use a few different um, IDEs actually. So I mentioned that I had a, a script 
uh, that was uh, again this job of that script was only to take in an input and in output it would give you you know uh, the amount of meaningful words for example so when i'm building that component i use spider because it's much easier for me to build those kinds of uh, sort of computational engines on spider than it is on uh, visual studio so i have these different ids for different tasks and that makes uh, you know uh, organizing a project a bit more easier okay and uh, just for reference here what exactly is spider a spider is just a uh, python um, id um the benefit of it is it is the, the gui of it makes it easier to do sort of scientific calculations because it can keep track of um, um, your variables and all of that in a much more simpler way than um, other IDs. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop a link to that in the show notes. So, Saad, thanks a lot for coming on the Running In Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yeah, it was great being here. And uh, before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, if people want to visit the site they can just go to covertuner.com if they want to reach out to me then they can uh, you know feel free to send me a message on my linkedin page um, i'll give you the link and you can put it below cool and on that note to everyone listening thanks for tuning in and i'll see you in the next one you've been listening to the running in production podcast you can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com also don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.